Do woodpeckers laugh? <laughs> Hello everyone, and welcome to my show today. A longtime friend of mine from Old Progress Cumberland Church near Pleasant Hill, Louisiana, called me the other day and asked me about my grandmother the Reverend Ada Slayton Bonds, and how in the world she found forgiveness over and over during her lifetime. They had just finished reading my novel, Faith, 70 times seven. It brought to my mind how we all study the Bible. Just the other day, I remember standing in a jewelry store and a young girl walked up to her mother and said, Mommy, why is that man hanging on a cross? And later that day, I heard a song on a gospel music station called Jesus is King. I never had in the past, but this time, I somewhat wondered to myself, king of what? And lastly, there was a quote on my Facebook page that said, Jesus is the answer. I don't know why, but I had to stop what I was doing and contemplate for just a second. What was the question? Now, depending on who you ask, you will get different answers to the question. So let me ask you, did King David really commit adultery? Did he actually sin with Bathsheba? Oh, and yes, King David is the same man who killed the giant with a slingshot. Let me begin by first saying, as a general rule, you read the scriptures. This is what I did when I wrote Genesis, or Seeing the Power of God, or another book called Hallelujah, and finally the one we're talking about today, Faith, 70 times 7. After this first time reading the scripture, which is the subject of my podcast today, King David and Bathsheba, you come away with an individual reflection of what you just read. And this first reflection is how the book was written and how many people define what they read as the gospel. But now I ask you to go back. Go back to that scripture. Start over and read that same scripture in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Now, sit there for just a moment and say to yourself, what else? What else? Let's talk for a second 
and think deeply about the story of Bathsheba and King David. Your first impression of what you read is always inadequate. This first impression we read is yours or it's mine when we read the scriptures. That's an important question. What else? The first time you read the story is usually only the tip of the iceberg. There are so many commentators and college essays and debates and so forth that this first reflection that you get is endless on what each person gets from the story. Go back to my podcast a few weeks ago, A Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. A similar technique was used in understanding what the writer was really trying to say. We were asked that question in a Bible session after reading 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. Some thought David sinned by committing adultery. Some thought Bathsheba had such seductive powers, David couldn't say no to her. After all, she bathed nude below his window on a rooftop. Hmm. This is not to say anyone is wrong in their opinions of what went on with David and Bathsheba, but 3,000 years ago is a very, very long time, right? When writing the novel Genesis, I wrote many stories about many of the prophets and heroes in the Bible. Today, in this podcast, I must admit going into the podcast that King David is definitely one of my heroes, as he should be one of yours too. There are so many lessons in life that we can learn from studying this chapter in the Bible. To be honest, I dislike going through the biblical passages on the surface in the scriptures and seeing my heroes falling in such a big way. So, I repeatedly read them three, even four times, giving each reading a more profound thought. And as I said earlier, there's more to the story than, how did I say it earlier? The tip of the iceberg? But, we must remember that David was a man, a human being, and he, like us, had to live with the fallout of his choices. So now, let us begin our first reading of the story. And, oh, by the way, thank you so much for joining me today. everyone, Sydney St. James with the story of King David and Bathsheba. 
King David was probably one of the holiest men that ever lived. Yet, the story we hear at most Bible studies and from ministers standing in the pulpit is that he sent Bathsheba's husband off to die so that he could commit adultery. Hmm. Not the kind of story one wants to hear about one of the Bible's most holiest men ever lived. So, we're going to dig deeper, much deeper, into these particular scriptures. We will analyze the two chapters in 2 Samuel and find out the truth. At least the truth as far as I believe. I don't wish to have King David whatsoever fall from this pedestal I have placed him on for a long time, ever since I wrote my book, Genesis. That wouldn't be acceptable whatsoever. Now, let's step back for just a second. If King David was really guilty of adultery, and sending a man off to die so that he could have Bathsheba, we wouldn't be sitting here today reading his psalms and praises in the Bible, right? We wouldn't quote him, or we wouldn't sing praises about him. We wouldn't celebrate the king at all. We would simply erase him from all all our memories. The average decent person doesn't commit adultery. So, think about those scriptures once more. Don't read through them one time or two times. When you're really wanting to understand a scripture, read through it over and over. And each time, you'll have a different perspective of what you're reading about. Now, you read those two chapters. Now, go back to like poetry interpretation. I talked about Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken, a while back on one of my broadcasts. Take it and really look over and give more thought to the scriptures. There's got to be more to this story. Trust me when I say this. Okay, let's rewind for just a moment and see what's happening in this story on the divine level. Therefore, we must first be able to select good over evil, right? And true over false. And again, lightness over that of darkness and that which is sweet over that which is bitter. In other words, why would anyone choose the wrong rather than choosing the right? Our God Almighty is actually creating the world at every single moment in time. He didn't stop after he rested for a day. He still creates every single second of the day, but this is concealed from you and concealed from me, seeing him. He is not visible. 
If God would have made the world in six days, as spoken of in Genesis, and just simply went and quit, and the world goes on floating all alone, it wouldn't be surprising that we can just go and forget about it, deny his existence because we no longer would have any contact with him. However, the truth is actually the fact that God is creating the world we live in right now. As I'm speaking to you in this podcast, God is present, although we don't see it. He conceals himself from us, but he's there. Every minute, every single second of the day. Okay, so I got a little bit off my story, so let's let's get back to Bathsheba and David. The same is true about godly people, very godly people. Prophets are heroes everywhere who were not recognized and who were not appreciated. So, the holiest person in the world could walk down a street in downtown Georgetown, Texas, and not a single soul would look at him and know that he or she is holy. This holy person was like David in that no one would know he was blessed. He concealed himself. Okay, now let, let's see how King Solomon was born. He came after King David. He was born from Bathsheba. So, let's back up before his birth by a few years. King David was in his palace, and he was standing out on the balcony high up, looking down across the large city. He looked down on a rooftop, and there she was, the most striking and gorgeous woman he had ever seen. As a matter of fact, he fell madly in love with her at first sight. Could be lust, but let's call it love. Being completely naked and taking a bath could have helped things a bit, but we won't go there in this podcast and leave it for possibly a chapter in one of my novels. But Bathsheba's husband was a soldier in his army, and King David sent the soldier to the front lines in hopes that he would not survive. Or, so it appears when you read the scriptures. That's how we read about it on the first pass of the scriptures, our first reflection. Then, the king marries Bathsheba. I should say that Bathsheba was not a young woman, but more only like that of a girl. But way back in biblical days, girls got married very young. The scriptures also confirm that every time a soldier went off to war, he divorced his wife. That's right. I bet you didn't know that. This was done because if the husband is lost at war, be either killed or was put in prison for the rest of his life, the woman would not be a living widow and could remarry. Being a prophet, David knew that his heir and successor would be the son born to him 
and Bathsheba, a woman of renown, famous for her excellence of character, no less than for her unsurpassed beauty. According to the customs of the time, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, had obtained a divorce from his wife. All men did this, as I mentioned earlier, before they headed off to the front lines. Sometimes the battles they undertook took years to fight, and many knew they would not be returning. Knowing this, David wished to marry Bathsheba at once. So, he summoned Uriah to him, and in the course of the discussion, Uriah insulted the king. David could have had Uriah tried. He could have killed him right then and there for high treason, right on the spot. But King David was afraid that the trial might be considered a means of getting rid of him. So, David permitted Uriah to return to the battlefield, but instructed Job that he should not endanger the lives of other soldiers to save Uriah from any predicament for he deserved death in either case. Job acted upon these instructions, and Uriah fell, pierced by an Ammonite archer. In due time, Uriah's widow became David's wife, but David was soon to learn that his deed had greatly angered God. In conclusion, no, King David did not commit adultery. And no, he did not send him back to the front lines to die so that he could have had Bathsheba. However, David cried for the rest of his life when he found the Lord was displeased with his actions. He turned to the Lord and asked for his forgiveness. Forgiveness for what, you might ask? Not really. No one should know that any holiness was going on. That is why as you read the story, it sounds terrible, awful for someone so doggone holy. You need to stop and think. Was some guy in the Bible committed adultery? So what? Why do we need to know that? And if we did, why are we still interested in King David? That is why we must be cautious when reading the scriptures to believe our first thought, or another way said, our first reflection. In other words, what you think at the very beginning, why is it so important to know more of the surrounding scriptures? So many of you are listening to my podcast today, get the impression that King David sinned. I think you're wrong. Of course, that is only my opinion. But what I've told you is what I believe. Many scholars do believe that David sinned and committed adultery when studying the scriptures. But there are many just like me who think differently. Now, let me do this. Let me just take a quick break for our sponsor who will help us keep the lights on around the broadcast room here and be right back 
right after this. And now for the rest of my story. Now, let's rapidly for one moment rush back to the beginning of this podcast. First, let's talk about how King David supposedly fell into sin with Bathsheba. So many people talk about it, but very few actually open up the Bible and read the scriptures of the actual events. So let's begin. How did a man, after God's heart, fall into sin? King David? Look at the story a way many look at it. Probably more so will agree with me. The scriptures explain how Job accomplished King David's wishes to give David's plan some sort of credibility. Knowing that if you're going to make an egg and cheese omelet, you'll have to break a few eggs, right? So Job sent Uriah along with what would have been some of Uriah's men to where the fighting was always the most treacherous during a siege, right outside the city's main walls. Several Israelite troops were killed by the Ammonites along with Uriah. The mission was accomplished. And according to the courts, justice was served because David was legally entitled to have Uriah put to death. After all, he had been disrespectful by not obeying David to go home and have sex with his wife, Bathsheba. This might be an excellent time to pause and talk about something that we're all familiar with. Dutifully following orders, no matter how illegitimate or crazy they might seem. And then, when confronted with the dastardly consequences putting up the defense that we were just, what, doing our job, and thus ought to be held immune by God himself and all men, in God's view, the reality in that situation is that we are nothing less than co-conspirators to do intentional wrongdoing against him. In today's world, such a thing can take many subtle forms. The classic tale of David and Bathsheba. Since we are in the middle of the midterm elections here in our country, we are currently in the political season. Another good example would be the outright lies hurled by one opponent towards the other in hopes of winning an election. Or the pronouncement of a litany of false promises that the politician has no intentions of keeping with victory as the same anticipated outcome. But, of course, the candidate for office invariably has a highly paying team behind him who creates the narrative and the advertising that puts forth those falsehoods. What is their rationale for avoiding responsibility? 
I'll tell you what they think it is. It's my job, man. Have you ever heard that term? It's just part of the process. It's usual and customary and merely what I was hired to do. We all know that politicians don't tell the truth, have one face for the public and another behind closed doors. So for them distorting or withholding the truth is just a daily part of their profession and therefore ought not be seen as wrong or criminal or even as indicative of their character. So, the person who aids them must be even more innocent, right? How about the highly paid corporate CPA, instructed by upper management to manipulate the numbers or make falsified reports even though he knows it's his full intended inaccuracies? What is his excuse for complying? I'll tell you what his excuse is. He would answer, I'm innocent because just did what I was told. It's not my job to judge my boss. I could lose my job if I didn't do it. Or how about the real estate agent that helps his client hide serious defects in the property he is selling to an unwitting buyer who would never complete the sale if he found out? or a lawyer who is given the legal right to know with certainty that his client is guilty as charged, but instead works to have him fully exonerated, escape justice, and have the chance to go out and do it all over again. Or how about the family doctor? who overcharges for some tests or procedures on your behalf so that the insurance company will pay enough to cover the legitimate charges and thus he makes more, but it costs you less. Or how about your preacher or your priest who teaches his congregation a doctrine or religious principle that he knows is not valid, but it adheres to his denominational creed to which he has vowed fidelity, and thus teaching it allows him to maintain his position in the church or the synagogue or whichever employs him. A lot to think about, isn't it? Killing Uriah certainly wasn't Job's idea, nor did he seem to have anything against him. But Job, was every bit as guilty as David because it's one thing to send men into harm's way in war knowing that the inevitable result of the legitimate battle is that many will lose their lives. But it's quite another, however, to knowingly use the enemy to kill a comrade you won't dead for concealed motives. Job was merely trying to please King David do what he was told, and now he had blood guilt on his head. David did too, and yet neither held the weapon that killed Bathsheba's husband. Yoam sends a courier back to Jerusalem to tell David about the initial setback near the walls of Rabbah 
in which the Israel suffered tragic casualties. Wanting to be cautious and not fully trusting the messenger to be as blindly loyal as himself, Job disguises the part of the message that David is waiting anxiously to hear by making it seem as though Uriah's death was merely an incidental part of the report. He fully expected David to understand the intent. However, if David became angry by failing to realize that the deaths of the other soldiers were necessary collateral damage for the king's command to be carried out, then the messenger was to emphasize Uriah's demise. I know this can sound complicated sometimes, but keep listening. Indeed, David did in fact get angry when he heard the report. David couldn't fathom why Job would do something so fundamentally unsound from a tactical standpoint. Put his men directly under the city walls where they were vulnerable and bound to suffer casualties? However, David's anger stemmed more from Yoaf not going about things as David had ordered, no matter how ridiculous and impossible the order than the soldiers being killed. And his callous response demonstrates all of this. David's reply to be sent back to Yoav sounds to the messenger like a standard soldier's cliché. Don't let this matter get you down. The sword devours in one way or another. But because David's intent was to send a coded message back to Job that he understood why the other soldiers had to die for Uriah to be killed, David's words are full of deceit and cold-blooded and devised so that the messenger would be none the wiser. Oh well, if a few unimportant foot soldiers die, so what? That's just the price of success, right? That's just the reasonable cost of David achieving his cover-up, keeping his reputation clean, and getting the girl. As we will see in a future podcast, David's exact words will haunt him and his family in ways David could never imagine. So far, what we're reading are words on the surface. It's sort of like when someone tells you that you can't believe everything you read on the internet. This is why my success as a professional genealogist has been recognized. One must understand the entire behavior of the person, what they did during their lifetime, what accomplishments did they do to fully understand the person historically. In Sunday school classes and Bible studies, you heard people say that King David was a man that took after God's own heart, yet he fell into sin like so many of us do. Now, those scriptures we talk about are found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. Reading those scriptures, you will find them devastating you will discover for one reason that David didn't escape temptation. He was on that rooftop looking down. He saw a woman bathing 
who was naked and also very beautiful. It's very natural for one's breathing to get rapid and thoughts to go through one's head, but why didn't David just turn away from his sinful thoughts? God always gives us a way to escape our lustful eyes and the road to temptation and sin. Interestingly, almost every person within the scriptures has something that just doesn't look right. I mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast. So we have to continue past those first reflections. We need to discuss what really happened. But as you go through history and you get closer to the 21st century, the holy people in the Bible, they don't need justification or explanations or even commentaries on their lives. They are holy, period. Well, enough said today, I suppose, and that does it for me, but uh, okay, as you notice, (laughs) I could keep rambling on and on, but have exceeded my time. So my publisher is already putting his finger up to his neck saying, you're over, you're over, so I got to round this thing up. So let me tell you, to be sure to share this podcast with your friends and click on the follow button if you can find one on the screen somewhere up there or be alerted to the voicemail that you can send me and your comments on this broadcast. It's a little round blue circle and has a white microphone in it. And when you click on it, you can leave as long a message as you'd like. And it will also alert you to more of the future Sydney St. James shows. If you can take the time to also leave a friendly review, I would appreciate that as well. So, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, see you later, alligator. That does it for another episode on the Sydney St. James Show. I want to thank everyone for listening and everyone for dropping by today. Also, I'd like to ask you, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click the follow button. Leave a short review with maybe, hmm, kind words. And tell your friends about the Sydney St. James Show and share share the show with anyone that you think might like the show. The more, the merrier, and maybe by the end of this year, our goal is to have 100,000 listeners for the Sydney St. James Show, and I want you part of that listening group. Until the next great episode from the Sydney St. James Show, again, thank you very much from me, Sydney St. James.